Good morning. It's good to see everyone. If you'll turn your Bibles this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. It's been a long time since I ever thought I would say that. Chapter 16, 1 Corinthians. Uh, about two years ago, maybe a little longer, we started looking at this letter to the Corinthians, and here we are now in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, the final section. Written by the Apostle Paul to the church at Corinth and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It's been a remarkable it's a fascinating letter. As you heard read earlier in chapter 16, those first 18 verses, this is a really different chapter. It's not like the other chapters where Paul is correcting some Corinthian behavior or giving some kind of doctrinal teaching to the Corinthians. Uh, this is just totally different than the way Paul has written up till now. And so we are looking at uh, some different uh, issues, or different issues, but just different themes in this, in this chapter. It's almost like you're getting a glimpse into Paul's ministry skills here, his ability to minister, to lead ministry. I mean, he's an apostle, uh, he's got several churches, he, he travels to see all kinds of things. You see... Uh, you see that the skills that Paul uses in leading a ministry. There are lots of things going on in this chapter. Several issues come up. You're going to see finances. You're going to see a trip. You're going to see uh, things going on in Ephesus. You're going to see opposition. You're going to see his concern for other pastors. You're going to see... Uh, just the, the team, the maturity of the team that he works with. You'll see all those kinds of things in this chapter. And it's almost like he's dealing with issues that you would see at an elder agenda, elder meeting agenda. It's, it's just those kinds of issues that you encounter in ministry. So as I'm looking at this and reading this, I'm thinking, well, this is what effective, stable, secure, solid, God-honoring ministry looks like when you're ministering in a ministry and you're leading in a ministry. And so I want to just take some things from this as we go through this chapter and just point out some things. We're only going to look at the first four verses today, but I think what you'll see is just the skill that Paul uses in leading ministry and what's necessary for effective ministry and pray that we as a church would be very much in line with what's said in this section. Um, start when, the first one I'm going to start with is in verses 1 through 4. And it has to do with finances. It has to do with something that is very important in a church, and that is how the finances are handled, how the finances are administered. And one thing that I think you would agree with, that if there's every, an area of abuse in ministry, it's how finances are being taken care of and, you, and by leaders and those in positions of uh, authority. You have embezzlement, uh, you have fraud, you have uh, things like that. And you're going to have a stable ministry if that's what characterizes that ministry. And so I want to start with that one this morning. That's in the first four verses. Uh, we recognize that that's an area where there must be accountability. They must be handled with care. And that's what Paul is talking about when he talks about the collection for the saints there in verse 1 of chapter 4 excuse me, of chapter 16. Turn to Galatians chapter 2 just for a moment. I want to talk about this, this uh, collection for the saints just for a second. Because it's mentioned several places in the New Testament. Specifically, verse 3 identifies as the collection for the saints, specifically for the poor saints in Jerusalem. 
You see that? This is money that is being collected for saints in Jerusalem. And this is something you see Paul talking about several times in his epistles, talking to different churches about this collection for the poor saints in Jerusalem. In Galatians chapter 2, this is kind of where Paul is first introduced to the other apostles, where he first is sort of confirmed by them that he is an apostle and that he is teaching a gospel that is correct, even to the apostles. You see in chapter 2, Galatians verse 9, it says that, And recognizing the grace that has been given to me, James and Cephas... And John, this is James, Jesus' brother, and Cephas and John, our half-brother, who were reputed to be pillars, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship so that we might go to the Gentiles and they to the Jews or to the circumcised. So you have these leaders of the Jerusalem church confirming Paul and Barnabas in their ministry to the Gentiles, giving them the right hand of fellowship, he says. And then in verse 10, they only ask us to remember the poor, the very thing we were eager to do. And so this is something they say, remember those who are suffering. Specifically, it has to do with the poor believers in Jerusalem. Jerusalem was sort of the mother church. Jerusalem was the only church on the planet. And yet that church was going through a time of deep poverty. It was going through a time of great need. And Paul is now going to the Gentile churches and he is telling them about that need and collecting money to send to them. Paul says, I'm eager to do this. I'm eager to do, you know what this will do? This will show unity from between Jew and Gentile. If there was anything that characterized the early church, it was that Jews and Gentiles had a hard time coming together in the body of Christ. Their past were different, their culture was different, their religious background was different, all of those things. And coming together to be one body was a challenge. Paul saw this as a great opportunity to bring and to promote that unity. Go to Acts chapter 11 for a moment. Acts chapter 11. When Paul and Barnabas are in the city of Antioch, a prophet, Agabus, comes and talks about, talks about a famine that's going to take place. You see this in Acts eleven twenty seven through 29. Now at this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. Antioch is where Paul and Barnabas were. One of them named Agabus stood up and began to indicate by the Spirit that they would certainly be a, there would certainly be a great famine all over the world. Remember, we've talked about this. There were New Testament prophets in this period. And they talked about this, he talks about this famine. And this did take place historically in the reign of Claudius. And verse 29 says, This church in Antioch, and in proportion that any of the disciples had means, each of them determined to send a contribution for the relief of the brethren living in Judea. Verse 30, And this they did, sending it in charge of Barnabas and Saul to the elders. So Paul and Barnabas have already been involved in taking money to Jerusalem prior to 1 Corinthians 16. Paul and Barnabas have already participated in a previous offering to that particular church. And this Jerusalem church had significant perpetual poverty. Uh, 35 years after Christ has ascended back into heaven, and the poverty there is terrible. Um, when, when, a, when a 
Jew would come to Jerusalem, say for one of the feasts, like Passover or Pentecost, they would come there and they get, they get saved. They get converted. And here they are in Jerusalem and they don't want to go back home. There are no other churches back home. There is no apostles back home. There's nobody doing any teaching back home. There's no fellowship back home. So they want to stay right there in Jerusalem. And this happened. It just made a very overpopulated city because all these people would want to stay. And this is the only church on the planet. There's no other churches in the world at that time. Secondly, when people, when the Jews would become Christians, many Jews would then lose their social standing. They would lose their opportunities for work. They would lose their opportunities for family support. They would lose their opportunities for the the synagogue relief programs. They would lose all of that when they came to Christ. They would be ostracized by their own people. So you had Jews who were foreigners who would come in and stayed after they became Christians. And then you had Jews who were converted there and they could not get work there. They could not meet their needs there because of the persecution that they faced. And thirdly, the Jerusalem church also was involved in sending out people, sending out people to start other churches, Peter, or go to at least build up other churches, like Peter and Paul and others. So all I'm saying is there was a perpetual need in the Jerusalem church. Paul... Paul is trying to make a collection, has been talking about this collection for the saints in Jerusalem to help support them. And so he he knew it would encourage unity, but it also meet a real need that people had. And the Jerusalem believers were very generous and they took care of one another. But now you got a famine, now you got persecution, and now you got, you know, the problem just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. In Romans 15, if you want to turn there, if you want to follow me on some of these verses, I just want you to see, I guess I just want you to see how big this issue is. It's not just 1 Corinthians 16. It's a collection for the saints. But in Romans chapter 15, this is kind of at the end. This is kind of Paul writing when he's pretty much got the money together and he's going to get ready to go back, go to Jerusalem. Notice in 15, verse 24, he says, whenever I go to Spain... I hope to see you in passing and to be helped by, on my way there by you when I first enjoyed your company for a while. He's writing to the Romans here. But now I am going to Jerusalem. This is when I'm going now. I've, got, I've collected this offering and I'm now I'm going to Jerusalem. Notice for Macedonia and Achaia. Macedonia and Achaia are those regions that you look at on a map where you have Corinth and Thessalonica and Philippi and Berea all located in Macedonia and Achaia. Those churches have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. Paul has collected that offering, and now his plan is to take these monies from these churches that he has planted who have willingly given to this love offering for those believers who are in poverty. And, you know, that is just going to open the door for closer fellowship um, because like I said before, they just, there wasn't much fellowship between Jew and Gentile. But this was a very tangible way for Gentile churches to express their love for the Jewish church, predominantly Jewish church, by sending this gift. It would show a bond of unity 
unity of faith in Christ. And look, look at verse 26. Um, another reason he was promoting this gift, verse 26, for Macedonia and Achaia, this is Romans 15, verse 26, for Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints, read that. Yes, they were pleased to do so, and they are indebted to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual things, they are indebted to minister to them in material things. In other words, it certainly will show unity, but hey, listen, you are indebted to that Jerusalem church. You have, have gotten so much from them in regards to the teaching that has come from them, as regard to the influence of the apostles that have come from them, and also from the missionary work that has gone out from them. I guess, you know, he really wants the Gentile churches to feel the weight of that a little bit. These are your brothers and sisters in Christ. They have done so much for you, and you're indebted to them. You just can't forget about them. <clears throat> so Romans 15 is sort of at the end of it all. He's writing that from 2 Corinthians, when he, from the Corinth, by the way, later on in Corinth. So that's about 50, 56 AD when he writes to the Romans in Romans 15. He's about at the end of everything there and collecting this offering. But let me just show you that between 1 Corinthians 16 and Romans 15, a lot happens in that one year, 55 AD to 56 AD. Let me just give you a little bit of New Testament history about what happens because it just adds to the impact of how Paul administers and oversees this offering. Because a lot happens. It's very chaotic between 16.1 in 1 Corinthians to giving them instruction about collecting this and when he actually collects it. Let me show you how he does that. Um, and the MacArthur Study Bible was very helpful in getting, the, just getting these dates and understanding the sequence of events here. But after Paul writes this, or after the, the Corinthians received this letter, back in 1 Corinthians, after they received this letter, um, there was a, a, almost a division in the church that took place. Uh, it was an issue of the brother who had sinned and who was seeking to repent and someone to forgive him and some did not want to forgive him. It was an issue over people not liking Paul and liking Paul. In other words, a church split came about in the Corinthian church. Very significant. It's referred to in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. It gets so bad that Paul has to write a letter to the Corinthians, a severe letter he calls it, rebuking them for their behavior and for how they're treating this brother. Um, it just explodes in conflict, though. It almost divides the church. It turns very ugly. Paul had to, had to leave. Paul goes and visits for a period of time. He leaves Ephesus and comes down there, but then he has to leave because they're mad at him. And this is, this is right after 1 Corinthians is received and before 2 Corinthians is written. In that period of time there, prior to Romans 15, when the offering is completed, completely collected, we have this horrible situation that takes place in Corinth. Paul sends Titus down there to sort of bring about reconciliation. Paul sends Titus to Corinth and tries to say, hey, get them to like each other and get them to like me. I mean, that's basically what he was trying to do. Get them to reconcile, bring about peace among them and peace between them and myself. At the same time, Paul was in Ephesus and a riot breaks out there. Listen, things are not going well in Paul's ministry right now. The Corinthians are divided and there's a riot in Ephesus. And 
he's run out of Ephesus and he can't go to Corinth and he can't so he goes back into other cities in Macedonia Philippi and Thessalonica but he writes about this in 2 Corinthians and calls it the hardest months of my life I wish I were dead basically Paul, between, Paul in this period of time is so discouraged, feels so alone, feels so out there with no one supporting him. All of his fruit seems to be rotting. And he's very distraught. But in the midst of all that, Paul never gives up on this love offering to the Jewish church. He never gives up on that. Um, and that's when he says the Macedonian churches are responding with enthusiasm. Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea, they're all responding with great enthusiasm. And so what Paul does in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9, that's 2 Corinthians, he goes back now and reminds the Corinthians of 1 Corinthians 16.1. Do you follow me? I want you to see the connection between 16.1 and 8 and 9 in 2 Corinthians. And the reason, there was a, a big, horrible mess in between it all. But Paul does not abandon this offering. It's that important. And so he, he introduces it here in 1 Corinthians 16.1. And in chapters 8 and 9 of 2 Corinthians, he's going to come back to them and remind them of it. Hey, listen, when you're going through a church split like they were going through, when you're going through conflict in the church like what you're going through, like they were going through, you're just very self-focused. You're not thinking about the needs of anybody else. But Paul, Paul did not let him forget that. Once things were better, Titus comes to him and says, hey, things are actually going better in Corinth. And when that happened, Paul then prepares to write to them 2 Corinthians, and then Paul goes and visits them again. And in that process, he reminds them about this offering. I just say all that to show you that it, that, that offering is an important event in the New Testament. And Paul is trying to administer it in the midst of so much turmoil. And so much over a period, a long period, over a long period of time. And so it's against that backdrop that I just kind of want to put up there before I talk about 16, 1 through 4. I just want you to understand this is the beginning. It's going to be a delay. It's going to be picked back up in 2 Corinthians. And then the, they do give a very generous offering. But listen to this. Go to back to 16, 1. 16, 1. Concerning the collection for the saints, this is how he's going to end the letter, this section here, one of the topics at the end of this section, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you also. This is, the, this is what he wrote before the blow up. He's telling them how to administer the gift, the collection for the saints. This you're going to see Paul's skill as leading a ministry. Uh, first off, I want you to notice it's to the saints. It's not to the world. This is not a gift. You really don't see examples where the church takes an offering for the world. You don't see that. I'm not saying it's wrong to do things like that, but listen, our priority is the Great Commission. Our priority is, is the love of the brothers and sisters in Christ. That's our priority. That's the biblical priority. I mean, we have no way to know how monies are spent or motivations behind how monies are spent when it's given to the world. We, we look for those ministries where the gospel is going to be the focal point because that's all that really matters. That's all that really matters. 
And so it's to the saints. It's to the saints. This is a church helping a church. These are churches helping a church. And then you see, it's going to be more than about money here because he's giving instruction to all the churches. There's some instruction here. Not just the money. I want to give some instruction. Verse 2. On the first day of every week, one of you is to put aside... Uh, excuse me, each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper so that no collections be made when I come. Paul says, here's my instructions. This is my instruction to all the churches. On the first day of the week, seventh is Saturday, first day of the week is Sunday. Paul doesn't say Sunday. Sunday was a heathen word back then. Maybe that's the reason he didn't say it. We're not exactly sure when the transition was made from Sabbath to Sunday for believers to worship, but the point is on Sunday, that first day of the week, you are to set aside and save. Paul wanted everybody just to set aside the money for this offering. It would be something beyond and above what you would do to support the, support the church at Corinth. This is for the saints at Jerusalem. And he doesn't notice, he doesn't tell them, he, notice he tells them it's, uh, everybody's to do it, you're to do it in advance, and the amount was self-determined. As God prospers you, you choose to set aside what you will. There is no indication anywhere of what, how much or anything by the Apostle Paul. This is whatever you want to do. You see that in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 for sure. It's what you want. How Spirit motivates you. It's a free will gift. And that's what godly finances are, folks. They're self-motivated. That's very important. They involve advanced preparation as you purpose in your heart, 2 Corinthians will tell us. But it's self-motivation. Uh, he doesn't want a last-minute scramble when he comes. That's what he's saying there. He doesn't want the money collected when he shows up. He doesn't want people saying, oh no, Paul's coming to town, hold your wallet. He doesn't want that. He, he, he's, he's, he doesn't want him associated with the collecting of money whatsoever. Money collections were done by the false teachers. Paul does not want that part of his ministry that he has to them when he comes to town. Let's keep that, let's have that already dealt with before I get there so it's not associated with my coming. It's not going to be about, all about collecting money. And then the next verse says, the wise administration of this. When I arrive, whomever you may approve, I will send them with letters to carry your gift to Jerusalem. And, and I just say this to you, more than any other organization, the church has to have accountability. That's what this verse is about, accountability and how money is handled. There has to be integrity. There has to be the confidence of people when they give money to the church that is being handled in a godly way. This is abuse so much. Abuse so much. Um, there are too many churches that are not willing to let somebody come in and look at their books. There are too many churches that won't allow that. They're not willing to be accountable. I just want to say this, you know, we are blessed at Grace Church. We have layers of accountability in this church. We have layers of accountability in how the money is handled in this church. I just want to give you that assurance. As I'm studying this, I'm thinking about that. I'm thinking about our church. I'm thinking about how we do things. I can't say we've always done things as well as we want to do them, but I believe we are there. We have been there for a while. 
We have been there for a while, a long while. Records are kept, policies are set, and they're followed. We have paper trails that lead somewhere. That's the point. And I assure you, it's done well. And I'm thankful for all of those who are involved in that and who do that. And I say thank you to them. Thank you to them. And that's what Paul's saying about this love gift project. This is, a, this is one of his skills in ministry, making sure it's administered in the right way. Making sure that there is accountability from the time you give it to the time it gets to the saints in Jerusalem. It, it, knowing with confidence that it went where it was supposed to go. And they didn't have, they didn't have wire transfers. They didn't have online stuff. They didn't have armored chariots. They had to have individuals handle that to take that money to that place. And they had to be people that were trustworthy. And they had to be people that they were, had confidence in. And that's why he says, whomever you approve, not me, you know your people, whomever you approve. And they would have to carry it in gold. They would be going from Greece to Jerusalem. And there's danger of robbery from the outside and embezzlement from the inside. And so to guard against that, these representatives were chosen and they were given that accountability. And you can go to Acts 20. If you were going to Acts 20, Paul talks about the people that are accompanying him to Jerusalem. Acts 20, verse 4 and following, he lists some people. You, don't have, you can write this down, but you don't have to turn if you want to. But in Acts chapter 20, verse 4, Paul's talking about on his way to Jerusalem with this gift. And he's talking about this guy, this, these two guys I've got with me from this church. These two guys from this church. These two guys from this church. So Paul's traveling with several people who are helping to administrate this gift, getting from those churches to Jerusalem. That's integrity. That's the integrity of how he does this. And you say, were these necessary? Garland in his commentary is great on this. Because it was, it was typical. The Jews had these kinds of things in place. People, they would have a temple tax. So if they had a temple tax in Jerusalem, it would be like, and you're living in Rome, to pay your temple tax, you would have to send it from Rome to Greece. Excuse me, Rome to, to Jerusalem. And there would be all kinds of, got to make sure it gets there safely. So this was a practice with the Jews as well because they were always having money brought in to Jerusalem for their temple. And Garland, in his commentary, talks about a writing in Josephus. Josephus records an event where, where someone, um, someone 25 years prior to this, four Jews were carrying a large donation from Jerusalem and they disappeared. They disappeared with the loot somewhere. And the Romans were appalled at this that the Jews would let this happen. They trusted this guy and his cohorts and it, there was never heard from again with all this money. Real problem, real issue. It's a real issue today. It's a real issue today. You need to know there's accountability because that's what honors and pleases God. That's not just some human uh, 
in a practical sense, it is a human accountability, but it's a, it, uh, a human observation about this, but it also honors God and pleases God. So there's nothing new about these religious scams and those things that, they go, that are going on. Um, excuse me, let me look at one other verse here. But there's nothing new about these scams as they, they go on and they, they take place. Um, so this is the first mark of a strong and God-honoring ministry where you have clean and open and no reason for questioning. Let me just say, say a few things about, that's what leaders do, but let's talk about what we all, all the rest of us are to do. And I'd like to take you to 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9 and just kind of close with this this morning. Because that's sort of the leader's responsibility, what I've just shown you. And I want to show you in... 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9. And this is written after the chaos in the Corinthian church. 1 Corinthians 16, before the chaos. This is written almost a year later. And these are some things that the Apostle Paul writes. And, and several have laid these out as some great principles. I just want to bring us to these principles and share them with you this morning. And I thought they were great, great things to remind us of. Because where I could look at the other verses I just showed you and say, well, that's the leader's responsibility. Well, this is our responsibility. This is a responsibility for all of us. And let me just highlight some of the principles that are in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and chapter 9 about finances, about money. First off, you notice in verses 1 and 2 that giving and, and, and handling money is to be motivated by God's grace. You see that in verse 1. Now, brethren... We wish to make known to you the grace of God, which has been given in the churches of Macedonia, that in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. The point is this. He's still talking about this offering, and he's talking about the churches in Macedonia. But notice he is saying it's the grace of God. That make known to you the grace of God, which has been given in those churches that they are giving in their, uh, in their affliction, and they're giving liberally. Um, it's, it's when they saw the, Paul sees their commitment to these poor believers in Jerusalem, he's just overwhelmed with the grace of God, how the grace of God is working in them, that they would show generosity to people they don't even know. People who, in their pre-Christian days, would have called these Gentiles dogs, they would call them dogs. They would call them all kinds of names. And the Gentiles had names for them as well. But here these people are so moved by the grace of God, and they see a need, and they give generously. Nobody has to tell them how much to give or what to give. It's just God motivated them to give. He's amazed at that. Notice the second thing in those same two verses. Uh, the circum uh, it's unhindered by the circumstances. Notice a great ordeal of affliction. Their abundance of joy and their deep poverty. They're poor themselves. They're under all kinds of affliction. The, when, I think of, when I think of poverty and affliction, that does not add up to generosity. But that's what it does here. They're in poverty themselves and they're facing much affliction and yet, they're not hoarding and they're not self-focused. They still give. 
It, it may hinder what you want to give, but the giving is still there. The desire to give is still there. It's because it's grace-motivated. It's something that God is doing in their hearts. Thirdly, you'd see in verse 3 that it's sacrificial. For I testify that according to their ability, and notice this, beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord. They gave what they were able to give, and they even went beyond that. They gave what you would expect a person in their circumstances to be able to give, but then they gave above that. That's what he's saying. And you can just hear the amazement as Paul's writing this. I just can't believe this about these Macedonians. I can't believe this about the church in Thessalonica and Berea and Philippi regarding these Jews in Jerusalem that they don't even know and that for a long time there was a great wall of divide between them and God has torn down that wall and how God is working through the Gentiles to help these Jews. It's the grace of God at work in their hearts, in their lives. Notice it's uh, something that's self-motivated. I said this earlier, but it's not something that's imposed by their leaders. It's not something they say and try to guilt you into doing. It's not something where they say, if you don't give money, I'm going to die. I mean, I've heard pastors say that. You know, just threats over people. And if you don't do this or you don't do that in regards to money, it's not guilt-driven. Notice verse 3. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us. Notice this. Begging us with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. Look at that. Begging us. Paul, we want to participate. Listen, as a pastor, I have never heard anybody say, pass an offering plate. I've never heard that. But that's what he's hearing. Begging, the, begging us with much urging to participate. Paul's amazed. It's not percentage-driven. It's not, it's not uh, guilt-driven. It's not compulsory. Look at verse 7 of chapter 9. Flip over to chapter 9 in 2 Corinthians. Chapter 9, verse 7. It's talking about the same subject in chapter 9. Each one must do just as he has pro- purposed in his heart. Not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Same idea. Self-motivating, self-motivated, purposed. No amount is given. Not going to stand there and count bills as you put them out there. Listen, if you feel you have to give out of guilt, don't give. God doesn't need your money. God does not need our money. This is not about money. It's much more than about money. It's about the heart, the grace of God at work, all these things are going on here in these, the lives of these Macedonians. Number five, the fifth point I'd bring out, not a substitute for other things. Look in verse five, chapter eight, verse five. You can't say, well, I've given, now I don't have to do anything else. I've given, now I just want to sit back. That's not how their attitude was. And and this, not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. See that? Some people say, well, I put my money in, I'll just sit back. I've done enough. I don't have to do any other service in the church. I just give money. Verse 5 says, I mean, you would expect Paul to say, they gave themselves to us and they gave their money. But no, nothing is mentioned about money in verse 5. They just, what makes money 
money is made important because they were doing the first two. They were giving of themselves and, and, to, the, and to the Lord and to us. And another point would be in verse 6. And uh, talking about just godly finances, godly handling of money, godly, godliness in, in giving, both from the leaders and from, the, from us as members of the body of Christ. Uh, he would say in verse 6, about their commitments. You know, you make promises and you don't keep them. People make promises and forget about them. People make promises and don't see them through. This is interesting, verse six. So we urge Titus that as he had previously made at the beginning, so he would also complete in you this gracious work as well. Verse 10, I give my opinion in this matter for this is to your advantage who were the first to begin a year ago not only to do this but also to desire to do this. So when Titus was there, I told him to remind you about this offering. And then he says, uh, you started doing it. Go to chapter 9, verse 5. And so I thought it necessary to urge the brethren that they would go ahead of you and arrange beforehand your previously promised bountiful gift. So the same would be ready as a bountiful gift and not affected by covetousness. Here's what, here's what happens. You make a commitment to something, time passes, and covetousness sets in. That's his point. He says, I want you to be reminded of the promise you made. Back in 1 Corinthians 16.1, when all this started, a lot's happened now to 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9. I want to remind you of the commitments you made and that you started. And that's what he's saying there. Covet, don't let covetous sit in. Don't let greed sit in to where you think now I'm not going to see this to the end. His point is when you make a promise, he's saying don't let it dry up by covetousness. And look at another point he makes here in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 8. He talks about spiritual maturity. Um, it, I don't think um, that Giving is equal to spiritual maturity, but you can't have spiritual maturity without giving. They go, it's an important part of spiritual maturity. Um, immature believers don't give according to their ability to give. Uh, but mature believers understand that generous giving is a key part of their relationship with Christ. Look at verse 7. But just as you abound in everything, and then he lists the things they abound in, in your faith, um, in your doctrine, that's what utterance means, in your doctrine, and knowledge, and in all earnestness, and in the love we inspired in you, see that you abound in this gracious work also. See that, that just as you abound in all those other areas, you abound in giving as well. Generosity to the needy it needs to be just as much as important as biblical knowledge and everything else. Notice another point he makes, you're giving for a real need, not for a luxury. Notice in verse 14, at this present time, your abundance being, being a supply for their need, so their abundance may also become a supply for your need, that there may be equality. What he's saying there is, it brings a balance to the body of Christ. You give when someone has a real need, and you never know. That may come around someday where you have a need like that, and they give to you. There's equality in the body of Christ. Or someone else will provide for your need if they're not able to. But the point is, we're always giving to meet real needs. When a hurricane hits someplace, we want to meet real needs. 
We send money through Samaritan's Purse or other things. And we've, we've sent money this past year to the Russian churches to help with real needs within those churches. We're always looking for those kinds of things to meet real needs. Working through local churches to meet real needs. And then... God is generous to us. Notice in chapter 9, go to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Another point here, God is generous to us so we can be generous to others. See this in verse 9, verse 8 rather. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. Verse 11, you will be enriched in everything for all liberality, which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. God blesses us so we can bless others, is Paul's point there. There's nothing wrong with enjoying what you have. There's nothing wrong with enjoying, verse 11 is saying, with what you have earned. But there's, Paul says, you've been given liberally so you can give. And finally, He glorifies God. Notice verse 12. For the ministry of this service is not only fully supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing through many thanksgivings to God. That's what they were seeing. They were seeing the members of the churches who gave these gifts were seeing, saw overflowing many thanksgivings to God. God was glorified because of that. I guess the point this morning is this Jerusalem project was more than money. It was more than money. It brought glory to God. It brought maturity to believers. It put Christ on display. It brought unity in the body of Christ. I mean, it's more than about money. It affected the character of those uh, who were giving. It it confronted their covetousness. All of these things bring glory to God. This Jerusalem project, project love offering that Paul puts here 1 Corinthians 16 continues in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 was big part of the early church third missionary journey big part of his third missionary journey and he saw it through and he was able to take that offering to that church so that's the first in a line of other things you're going to see in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, handling finances in a way that pleases God, administering it in a way that pleases God, believers giving in a way that pleases God. And, and you know, some people have told me, you said, we don't hear many sermons uh, at Grace Church on, about giving. Well, you just heard one. Uh, it's your lucky day. Uh, Paul saved it for the last chapter of 1 Corinthians. Um, and this is where our verse-by-verse study brought us this morning, but it's very applicable. It's very applicable to us. This is a very giving church. Our church is blessed. We are so blessed uh, by the generosity of this congregation. This church is always willing to meet needs and benevolence and missions and the upkeep of our properties, all of those things. We are very blessed, and we have great people administering those funds. But we want to excel, excel still more. Um, we don't pass offering plates. You notice that. We don't do that. We don't, nothing's under compulsion. There's offering boxes in our auditorium and in our offering box in our auditorium and in our hallway there. That's how we give or mail or online, whatever you want to do. The point is we want to excel still more. We never want to stop being a giving congregation. We never want to say, well, we've arrived at that. He says in Proverbs 3, 9 and 10, I'll close with this verse, honor the Lord from your wealth 
and from the first fruits of all, excuse me, from the first of all your produce, so your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for this this morning. I thank you how we can learn from the example of the Apostle, Apostle Paul and uh, this matter regarding the early church, how it teaches us so much about ourselves, how it teaches us so much about what we need to do and what we need to practice, how we need to be faithful and show integrity and accountability and need to give, uh, not under compulsion, as we have purposed in our hearts, as grace has worked in our lives. Father, it's an important part of ministry, important part of our Christian life. We don't want to take it lightly. We want to always be evaluating ourselves on these things and asking you to provide that we might provide for others. We love you and thank you for this time this morning that we can spend in your word in this important section. We love you. And praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.